In the 18th century, the greatest military leader that France would ever know roamed Europe, gaining his victories over every opponent. He was a short man in stature, but a man of great military strategy. His name was Napoleon. Napoleon was fierce in battle and a brilliant strategist. The day came when Napoleon decided that he would not only conquer his neighbors roundabout, but he would go as far as Moscow and humiliate Russia. It was his intention that he would go and march that far with his soldiers and demonstrate his military might. And in one sense, Napoleon, somewhat like Cassius Clay of old, was not really all that arrogant a man, because if you can do it, it ain't bragging. And Napoleon marched his troops to Moscow. He surrounded the city, and he burned it to the ground. That doesn't mean every single building, but all the major buildings in Moscow were burned to the ground. And Napoleon lost the war in Moscow. How possible? Napoleon had never counted on the fierceness of the Russian winter. And when he came and surrounded Moscow, the troops in Moscow withdrew to the forest. As he burned the city, he did not take away its capability of fighting back. And then the winter set in. And the French soldiers could not endure the hostility of the winter, and they began to flee back to France. And that's when the soldiers in Moscow came out and easily picked them off as they were fleeing. And Moscow was set free. Now, in Moscow today, there still sits a huge bell that was rung in commemoration of the liberty of the people of Russia as they won the Napoleonic War, despite the fact they had to rebuild their city. And there is a huge, huge camp. I have never seen a cannon of that size, of that caliber, and cannonballs that size well, that still sits there in the Kremlin on Red Square as a remembrance of that war against Napoleon. And I'd like you to think for just a moment about that bell that they call their Liberty Bell that was rung. It too is cracked, by the way, although it makes the crack in our Liberty Bell look like nothing but a little thin line. I mean, a huge chunk came out of this uh, huge bell. But at the top of the bell stands a small cross. And as I think about my trip to Moscow, I, I think in a sense this bell is symbolic of what's important about Christianity being present now in Moscow. The only source of liberty that the have to hope in is in the cross of Jesus Christ. When Lenin came to power in 1917, he hated the Christian faith. And one of the expressions of that hatred is found in his going through all of Moscow and removing crosses off of everything. Crosses off the buildings, crosses off the steeples. Even to this day, you will find, if you look at my picture book, for instance, that I share with you, um, or if you look at other tourist pictures of Moscow, you will see that 
ordinarily in the place where a cross might have been found you'll see a star the star was the symbol of the communist party in its reign and that star is on all these different buildings but there is one cross that he did not take away and that was the cross on the liberty belt he dare not touch that Oh, how symbolic of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ rules as the Lord over nations. Kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, it is the one that endures forever. The people have experienced three revolutions, perhaps four, depending on how you count the unsuccessful coup of a couple of years ago, but they've experienced three revolutions in this century alone. The revolution of 1905 during the days of the Japanese War that led to certain concessions made by the Tsar and a change in his government, but the Tsar stayed in power. And then there was the revolution, 1917, the April or May revolution, depending on which calendar you were using. And in this revolution, a liberal government was put in the place of the Tsar and the Tsar was put under house arrest and allowed to live in peace, or so it was to be. But then Vladimir Lenin returned from London and fomented a revolution against his former colleagues, the Mensheviks, and the Bolsheviks took over Russia in October, again, October, November, depending which calendar you're using, of 1917. And it was at that point that scientific socialism, as Lenin called it, Marxism, properly understood, would be applied. And this, the world's first guinea pig for Marxism as a geopolitical force. If you have not read the history of Russia, I don't wish to make you feel guilty. I don't think I had understood it all that well until the opportunity came to go and then I read like mad and I was surprised to find out so much that um, I think we just don't believe or we wouldn't imagine. For three years there were uh, counter-revolutions. For three years there were uprisings among those, especially the farmers and so forth, against this. And only the viciousness of the Communist Party finally secured its victory in Russia. And scientific socialism banished, or said that it would banish, any religious considerations from the reign that it had over men. And the problems of men would be solved because human beings had devised their own way to be living their lives and how they would be ruled and how they would gain economic prosperity and success. And how peace would come to men because no longer would they be governed by vicious greedy, self-centered, capitalist overlords. Eventually, capitalism must die, according to Marx. In fact, it has the seeds of its own destruction within itself. The day will come in every capitalist land, Marx said, when the proletariat will rise up and get rid of their oppressive overseers. Why is it that people right now do not rise up and get rid of their capitalist overseers. 
Why is it that the managers of the factories and those who invested and those who are getting wealthy are not being thrown out already by the workers? Marx said, because for the most part, to accept their lot in life, that they are the downtrodden, they are the ones who will not get ahead, they are to be oppressed by those who get ahead. And the only thing they can hope for is some kind of salvation in the future. Marx said it is religion that is the opiate of the masses. And by that he meant not so much, although he believed religion was delusionary, he didn't so much want to criticize religion for it being false. His point was religion numbs people to the pain of being ruled by other people. And therefore, if Marxism, if communism was going to be successful with the overthrow of the capitalist leaders, there had to be a banishing of Christianity and all religion as well. And so when Lenin came to power, he not only viciously killed those who opposed him so that there would be no competition for leadership, he shut down the churches completely, burned many of the cathedrals, and made it clear the buildings that he spared would be put to the use of the people in general. It wouldn't be for the priest anymore and not for the religious hocus-pocus of Christian worship. And all that time, the cross were on the Liberty Bell in Moscow. And throughout 70-plus years in the 20th century, the communists had their way. And so invincible did their power seem that, as the pastor said in his introductory words, I don't think any of us expected to see communism outlawed in Russia in our lifetime. I have to be honest with you, I uh, grew up and became more aware of uh, socio-political affairs in the 1960s. I never would have expected to see the Berlin Wall come down in my lifetime, much less to see the overthrow of communism in Russia. And not only that, outlawing of the Communist Party. Through 70 plus years, these people were ruled over by godless atheists who believed that the scientific way to rule over people was by means of socialism. And during all that time, that cross remained on the Liberty Bell in Moscow. And today, it is now evident that people may raise their fist against the Lord Jesus Christ. They may cry out against his reign and against his sovereignty. But again, nations rise and fall, but it's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ that prevails over all. In our day, we see the cross upon the Liberty Bell in Moscow because, again, the Lord Jesus is seen as the ruler of nations. I already told you I never expected to see these sorts of things happen in my lifetime. When Gorbachev came to power in Russia. He realized that if he was going to be on a secure footing with the other uh, leaders uh, in Europe and especially in America, that certain changes were going to have to be made. Uh, he may have thought that these were going to be cosmetic changes and that uh, not a great deal would come from them. 
But the fact of the matter is that once he said we were going to have a, a policy of perestroika, open throat in Russian, that is free speech, the flood couldn't be stopped. And it has been my great privilege um, to stand in, in Pushkin Square where the people stood up using their privilege of free speech to denounce communism and the oppression that was supposed to bring a worker's paradise, that was supposed to show that we all love one another and that we'll serve one another and that economic prosperity will come when we get rid of all these capitalist, greedy uh, desires that communism had banished from Russia. People stood in Pushkin Square and they made it very clear that the workers did not want communism. They would no longer listen to the lies of their communist overseers. The hardliners in Russia realized that uh, their special privileges as the elite ruling class were going to be lost if they didn't do something. Now there's a great irony in this, isn't it? Communism was supposed to level society so that everybody was equal. George Orwell understood very well what that meant. You know, in his book, uh, Animal Farm, he has uh, this famous statement about all animals being equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And in the name of leveling society and bringing out all that which is good in men about serving one another, and gaining economic prosperity, and eventually gaining a stateless society, which is the declared end or goal of Marxism. Communism developed the most highly developed hierarchy and the most vicious state known in the 20th century. The workers were not blessed. The only people who were blessed were the upper echelons who were party members that were deputies in the parliament, leaders in the government, KGB, the secret police. Well, when Gorbachev opened up the floodgates of free speech and it became evident that people like Yeltsin and others were going to be elected by people and the Communist Party was going to no longer have its position of privilege, then certain hardliners fomented a coup against the Gorbachev government. Gorbachev was put under house arrest for 24 hours. The world didn't know where he was and what was going on. The coup was finally revealed. And as you just a couple of years ago, Boris Yeltsin climbed onto a tank in Moscow and rallied tens of thousands of Russians. And it turned out that the army would not shoot their own people. And communism was dead. And the cross was still on the Liberty Bell in Moscow. Because the Lord Jesus Christ rules over all. I couldn't believe in my lifetime I'd see such a thing happen. It's really incredible. Even today, I mean, I have to pinch myself in a sense and say, really? That could take place? It did take place? But you know, in my own life, something even more amazing took place. After those events, an invitation was extended to me to come to Moscow to preach the gospel, to defend the Christian worldview as an apologist, and to explain the ethical application of Christianity to the reform 
society and even its government. You really, because you don't live in my head, you don't know, you can't comprehend how incredible a thing that was to me. I'm not a foreign missionary. I have never thought of myself as a foreign missionary. As often as when I grew up in the church, I heard foreign missionaries and respected them and in a sense wished I had that kind of ability. I never thought of myself as a foreign missionary. But it isn't just that. Even though I was a pastor and ordained to serve in the church, I was serving in a, in a study center, which because this congregation sponsors it, you know is not, um, is not a huge uh, affair. We have five men who dedicate their time as a, as a board that oversees my ministry. We've been blessed by God. We have 70 or so students that we teach on a regular basis. I go around this country giving conferences and so forth. Uh, we have educational uh, opportunities. But going to a foreign country, it would never cross my mind. And now that an invitation comes, the problem is, how can I possibly see this funded? How could I go to a foreign country, present the gospel and defend it, because the people that I'm going to be ministering to either, one, don't realize that they need what I'm going to be saying, and so they don't know what's coming, and they're not willing to fund it, or if they are Christian people, they are so poverty-stricken that they're not able to pay the huge expense of airfare, hotels, and all the rest. And so believe me, I really glorify the sovereignty of God when I think that somehow this obscure minister in a small study center in Southern California in May of this year ended up flying to Moscow because the people of God had sent in the funds and said, yes, we want you. And for two weeks, I was able to glorify my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who was ruling over heaven and earth all the time that communism thought that they could, the communists thought they could arrogate to themselves the power to govern people. And now the joke is on them. Remember in Psalm 2, the one who sits in the heavens laughs when the nations rage against the rule of his son. And it's not just God who laughs. We should laugh as well. I was shocked when I got to Moscow and found out the way in which the people had been living for years. You would hardly believe it. Why they put up with it? Well, one can only surmise that they put up with it because they were so fearful of what would happen if they spoke out. The people in Moscow don't enjoy a level of uh, economic prosperity or um, a lifestyle that would be anything close to what you know here in California. I went to a typical Russian um, hotel when I stayed there. There are joint American-Russian ventures in Moscow, and uh, if I were to go back, I don't know if that's what God has in mind, I would probably go to one of these American affairs, although it's probably best that my first time through I found out what the people really lived like. In this particular hotel, I want you to remember that the communists made a real point, and the Russians have been very proud against the West in particular, of how clean their society is, how well-ordered their citizens are, 
how there is not the kind of sexual excess and, and license that you see in America and so forth. And when I went to Moscow and stayed in this hotel, I had to, every night when I went in, go through two or three groups of mafia standing outside with their switchblade knives and guns. I stayed on the 10th floor. Every floor of my hotel has a woman, in this in Russian hotels, that is in charge of overseeing the, uh, the house cleaning and making sure guests have their needs met and so forth. So happens that this woman is also the pimp on every floor of the hotel. Prostitution is rampant. It is brazen. I was, um, of course, uh, joyful the first day I was out on the streets and I saw an old woman with a card table selling Bibles out on the street in Moscow. I thought to myself, that is so precious. And I walked a block away and found another literature display that had bestiality, pornography, and Hitler's Mein Kampf. Freedom in Moscow is not understood as freedom in Christ. Freedom is understood as living unto yourself now. If we've thrown off our communist uh, tyrannical governors, we now live to ourselves, and there's a real sense of personal anarchy. The people there do not understand what it is to enjoy prosperity. They don't know what it is to enjoy freedom. And now that the opportunity to be prosperous and to be free has come, they have looked to the West and tried to gain that which is the worst in our society. And so they think it's, it's great that they can have their pornography, for instance, or great that they have the freedom to be capitalist. But the understanding of capitalism in Moscow is not productive capitalism, investing in something that, that makes a product or provides a service that is good for people and that will meet their needs, but rather it's middleman capitalism. And so what you'll see day by day is that people will go into the stores of all sorts. It may be a hardware store, it may be a department store, it may be a grocery store, and they'll buy some item, maybe a can of oil or a blouse or something like that, and then they go out on the street and they try to get somebody to buy that from them at a higher price. That's their understanding of capitalism, the middleman getting the profit of facilitating the sale. And so obviously, there's a great deal of work to be done in this land that has now been given its newfound freedom. The people in Moscow, the people in Russia, indeed the whole Commonwealth of Independent States, the former Soviet Union, need a new constitution. One of the things we had hoped is that when I went to Moscow, I'd be able to address the Constitutional um, Convention. I had an invitation from one of its members to present five lectures. But we realized before we went, and it was confirmed by the time we got there, that things were so hectic and there was so much uh, dissension, even to the point of fistfights among people, that it would not be safe to bring a foreigner in. At this time, President Yeltsin has two constitutional drafts before the committee. There's another one from the parliament and from um, his uh, dedicated opponent, Kozbulovtov. And there are a number of other drafts that are floating around Israel. Many people who have examined what Yeltsin would like to bring about 
in Moscow, listen to the rhetoric of his opponents that he's asking for too much power for himself as the president. And I have to be honest with you, if we were to examine his proposed constitution to our own, we'd say he really has centered too much power in himself. But you have to understand, in terms of the gradual evolution and development of a political order, that uh, we may not be able to see the kind of freedom that we would enjoy and wish for in America immediately instituted there in Russia. Because those who are opposing Yeltsin and using the rhetoric that he is asking for too much power, these are the old liners. You say, but they're in the parliament. They were elected. Most people don't realize that the old leaders in Russia, in Moscow in particular, for the most part, remained in power. They just came under a different flag. And so it's estimated that probably two-thirds of the Hall of Deputies are really just the old leaders of Moscow hoping to maintain their privilege and power and get rid of Yeltsin or whoever else it may be that wants to break their stranglehold on the government. And so uh, the situation in Moscow was not a pleasant one at all. I remember a number of years ago, the Beatles sang a song back in the USSR. Say back in the USSR, you don't know how lucky you are, boy, back in the USSR. And I'm here to tell you tonight they were lying. I don't see how anybody who had visited then the uh, Soviet Union or had visited Moscow could possibly think that you were lucky to be there. The hotel I stayed in was a miserable experience, although I'm told that it was cleaner and one of the better ones that was available to us. Three times when I was there, in two weeks, three times people tried to break into my room in the middle of the night. Now, because we had been warned by the U.S. State Department and others about the crime there in Russia, uh, one of the people on my board, Concern Safety, had given me a device that uh, signals when people are touching the outside of your, your door and so forth. And that, that was adequate to scare them away. I didn't have to be involved in defending myself. But I thought that was interesting that three different times, in the middle of the night, someone wanted to break into my hotel. And then again, when you have the mafia standing outside and prostitution rampant, what do you expect? My hotel was not a wonderful experience. I found that when a bill had to be paid, the people at the desk were able to come up with broken English. But when I had some kind of problem, it was always, we don't speak English, you know? You probably know that trick. We've, we've seen that, right? Nothing works. My telephone didn't work. My refrigerator didn't work. In fact, after complaining for three or four days, and, and a repairman eventually got up to take a look at, uh, at my refrigerator, and I was informed it was finally fixed, I had to ask my missionary friend who took me in, I said, Jim, come into my room. Do you think the refrigerator's working? And he kind of looked at it and put his hand in there. He says, it's, it's ambiguous at best, but I, I, I think it's working. So the reason we needed refrigerators in our rooms, by the way, is because you can't drink the water in Moscow. So we had to buy bottled water and, and store it in order to brush our teeth and to drink water and so forth, and that's because of the parasites in the water. In fact, uh, it's even worse in, in St. Petersburg, uh, where I understand 13, 14, 15 people a year, foreigners, die from drinking the water. 
And even now, I read, I'm, I'm glad that I got out in time, but there's now a diphtheria um, uh, plague that's uh, overcome Moscow. It's incredible. They have 140 people, I believe, that have died from diphtheria and so forth. It is not a clean place to live. You have never seen a public toilet as filthy as what I saw in Moscow, the capital of the empire. I mean, sometimes we think of low-level humor when you nations traveling through Southwest and so forth and going to some, you know, scungy um, gas station and using the restroom. Believe me, that would have been glorious by comparison to what I saw. In some of the walkways under the major boulevards in Moscow, people urinate openly. It's a filthy place. Nothing works. Junk piles up everywhere in Moscow. Why didn't we know these things? Because previous to perestroika and finally the opening up of the borders, whenever foreign um, visitors came, and especially news people, they were shown very limited things. And so the pictures that would come back to us would not give us that impression. And it's a great contrast. When you look, some of the buildings there and some of the streets look pretty decent. But for the most part, everything is horrible. And the places that people live are like concrete cages. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. They just go on and on and on. And people had to wait up to six years to get the right to live in one of these little apartments with a family of six, seven, eight children. When I preached for the, um, for the Baptist, the Evangelist Baptist Church in Moscow, one of the things that took place in that service, I'm listening to my translator explain this, is that a family was being received and their children were being dedicated. Of course, we think they should have been baptized, but the point is they were being dedicated. And the woman, when she was called on to pray, she prayed in tears that God would finally bring it about that they would have a place to live. And I looked at this family. They had three children, and they're living with her parents in an apartment because they have to be on the waiting list to get one of these junky concrete block places to live in. I don't know. Words would fail me to tell you how depressing the situation is there. As you walk through the city streets, it may be Red Square, it may be the Arabat, where um, so many merchants are, which is to be the great place for tourists to go. Uh, there is begging that takes place that is nothing like you see in downtown San Diego or Los Angeles or even New York for that matter. I couldn't count the number of women that have children in their arms who are calling out to people and pointing to their mouths saying, feed us. But to watch little children running to the trash can outside the Pizza Hut and pulling out the paper products and licking them because that's all they had to eat. The number of people who have physical deformities, which were very unpleasant to look at, begging in the streets. And then there are the gypsy gangs. At one point, when we just couldn't take the Russian um, restaurants any longer, we decided we'd go to McDonald's. You know, a taste of home, right? By the way, the McDonald's that I saw there is not like anything you've seen. It's incredible. An entire block-long McDonald's. And as you go in, 
um, they actually have to have ushers to help people get groups because of the hundreds of people they serve every hour there. And so you have this long, long counter for taking orders, and I don't think I would exaggerate to say there are six, seven, eight deep at every cash register all day long, every minute of the day. But you go outside the McDonald's, and in one sense it's a carnival atmosphere because there are so many people trying to sell you things and, and people juggling or doing things to try to entertain you and get your attention. But you go outside and you also take your life in your hands if you're not with somebody because of the gypsy gangs. The first day we were there, a gypsy boy, I'm, I would guess he was 10, 11 years old, came up and tried to put his hand in my pocket to take change out of my pocket. And I uh, not only rebuked him, but turned to shove him away. And my missionary friend came up and put his, his uh, shoulder into me and shoved me away and said, keep walking, boy. And he said, now look around. He said, do you see any of his friends? And that's perfectly true. There were nine or 10 friends that had circled the area and they were ready to jump me if I would have touched him. And they expect that people will simply give up their goods or get beat up. The next time we went to the McDonald's, uh, we didn't have quite as unpleasant experience personally, but I saw a drunkard being taunted by these gypsy youths. And it was unmerciful. Russia is not a pleasant place. Communism has not ennobled the people, has not uh, it lifted their spirits and made them more loving and willing to get along with each other and to serve each other. Service? They don't understand the concept of service. Some of you have heard this story. I think it's the most fitting to get the point across and so I'll re repeat it again. When we went to Zagorsk, which is known as the spiritual center of Russia, it's about an hour and 15 minutes outside of Moscow, has the largest seminary and nunnery and um, uh, cathedral and so forth, just beautiful. Again, look at the pictures that I have of it. We needed lunch and so went to a restaurant that had, I'm guessing, 30 tables or so, all of them empty. And when we asked to be seated, the waitress said, I can't seat you, all these tables are reserved. And so our Russian contact said, reserved for whom? And she, being in his face, said, the Moscow City Council. And so he asked for the manager, and they finally took care of that problem. We were seated, and we had somebody else wait on us, obviously, because that wasn't very pleasant. And after we were seated, I asked Vladimir, I said, what was that all about? He said, Greg, you have to understand that for over 70 years, the people of my country have been taught that they get paid the same thing whether they serve people or not. And this is what happens. You go into a restaurant, or just about any place, it just happened to be a restaurant in this case, and he said she realized that if she would shoo us away, she'd still get paid the same amount of money, but she wouldn't have to work for it. And so I'm thinking there, you know, the ugly American that I am, I'm thinking, well, isn't it obvious? Why doesn't her manager her? Because he's in the very same situation. He gets his stipend, whether there's trouble or there's no trouble, whether you serve people or you don't serve people. He has no incentive to make this a profitable restaurant any more than she has any incentive to be a very good worker so that she might get a good tip or might get ahead or a promotion or what have you. I want you to think about the deadening effect of communism on people. 
Some people think that communism represents an attitude of loving one another, trying to level everything. We're going to serve each other because we care. We're just good citizens. But communism turns people into self-centered, lazy, hateful individuals. When I was introduced to the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church at a conference where he was doing me a great favor to stand there and listen to this foreign Protestant, he wanted to know what I was lecturing on and why I was in Russia. And one of the things I explained to him is that I wanted to show that the people in Russia were not going to buy prosperity by running to capitalism if they didn't have a Christian foundation for that. And this led him to say something about, well, in economic matters, you know, it's important that we, you know, we serve one another. And so I had this opportunity, it was a very brief one, but I praise God for it, to tell this leader of the Russian Orthodox Church there in Moscow that only capitalism leads people to have a servant attitude. Because you see, when you're running your own restaurant, to go back to the illustration, if you don't serve the needs of your customers, if you don't treat them well, what happens to you? You go out of business, don't you? And so even if you are greedy and self-centered, you are forced to limit your own greed and your own desires for the sake of making sure other people are happy. But the people in Moscow, the people in Russia have not understood that. And so it's a very, very unhappy place, and I don't know what the future will hold. Unfortunately, um, many of the Christian reports that you get back from Russia, I think, are somewhat polite. They're somewhat sweet and saccharine, and um, I don't know whether the people have been bamboozled or fooled, but you have this idea that, you know, now that Russia is open, everything is wonderful. It isn't wonderful. They've only entered into a period of transition, and we must hope and pray. And I will plead with you for the sake of my Christian friends now in Moscow to pray that that transition will take them away from tyranny, away from greed and sin and rebellion and so forth, and lead them to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Because, you know, whether the cross stays on that liberty bell or not, it's only the Lord Jesus Christ that can save the people of Russia. And that was the message that God placed on my heart as I went there. On Sunday, May 16th, we went to a common building in Moscow where I preached to the Evangelist Baptist Church, this being my first speaking engagement there as I became a foreign missionary. And um, I'm not ordinarily intimidated about speaking in front of uh, crowds, not much. And that morning, I wondered to myself, how on earth will I preach to these people? I've got to use a translator. I'm not accustomed to having to break my sentences in half so that the translator can catch up with me, right? <laughs> and so, speak, let the translator speak, then finish the sentence, let the translator finish the sentence, and so forth. So we do this. And so I went with a certain sense of fear and trepidation, wondering, is this just going to be a fiasco or not? We went into this common building people have to use. They don't have their own building. About 300 lower-class, economic lower-class Muscovites meeting to worship there. Over 80% of them, I'm sure, um, were women. And I love these people. You see, though they may be poor, 
And though they may not be respected in Russian society, they have paid the price for being Christians throughout all the years of communist oppression. When they would get together for prayer meetings, they would have to turn radios on in their rooms full blast, lest the KGB know what they were doing. By the way, in passing, lest I forget, my hotel had two spots in the ceiling for microphones for the KGB. Every hotel room in Russia was bugged by the KGB. You never knew whether they were listening in or not, but the point is you never had privacy. Well, these people not only lacked privacy, but they had to, out of uh, fear of persecution, turn on their radio so that they could pray. Often men in that society that are in the church are introduced, not according to um, what their occupation is or how many children they have, but the first thing that is said is how many years they spent in the gulag for Jesus. nearly half never come back. And when they would leave, their family would never know. One day they would disappear off the street. 10, 11, 12 years later, they'd walk back into town and explain they'd been in Siberia working under forced labor. For what? Because they wouldn't go along with communist ideology, but would say that Jesus was Lord. I'm telling you, I love these people. Some of you already know but again, I want to repeat it. During that worship service, a Russian woman sang a song that she had written herself. It was a long one, I would say, probably had 20 verses. And it was, from a musical standpoint, easily the worst song I had ever heard in a Christian church in my life. The singing was miserable, and it brought tears to my eyes. Not because the singing was miserable, but because the translator was telling me what she was saying. And about her love for the Lord, and how she was willing to die for Jesus. I'm telling you, Christianity for these people is not a matter of having an ichthus on your BMW. 